The holidays are approaching, and every time it's around holiday season, I look at my own wallet, and I'm like, yeesh, I didn't really spend a little bit too much there. Well, if you're thinking the same thing, here's an idea. You can consolidate your high-interest credit card balances to a lower rate and save with Lightstream. Lightstream offers credit card consolidation loans from 6.14 APR with AutoPay. Compare that to the national average credit card interest rate of over 19% APR. Get a loan from $5,000 to $100,000, and you can even get your money as soon as the day you apply. The application is 100% online, and there are no fees. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a great interest rate. Worldly listeners can save even more with an additional interest rate discount. The only way to get this discount is go to lightstream.com slash worldly. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash worldly. Subject to credit approval, rate includes 0.5% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash worldly for more information. Saudi Arabia's war against the Houthi rebels in Yemen is one of the world's greatest humanitarian catastrophes. A Saudi-led blockade is starving people, children are dying, hospitals and schools have been bombed, and the United States has helped Saudi Arabia wage this vicious campaign by providing weapons and intelligence. But that might change. Welcome to Worldly on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hello. What's up? On Wednesday, there was this huge vote in the Senate on U.S. participation in the Saudi-Yemen war. We'll tell you what happened, why it happened, and what it might mean for America's participation in the war in Yemen in the future. Alex, let's start at the beginning, though. What was the deal with this vote, and why did it happen? So there are these three senators, Democrat Chris Murphy, Republican Mike Lee, and indep- a little-known independent senator named Bernie Sanders. Who? What? I feel yeah. like I've heard of him. Yeah, he's, he's, a young, he's a young whippersnapper. So these three gentlemen have been pushing for a long time to at least discuss America's role in the Yemen war. It's worth listening to their arguments as to why they are so passionate about this issue. So listen to Sanders and Lee on NBC about why they care so deeply. Well, I think for a couple of reasons. Number one— It is a horrific humanitarian disaster. Second of all, I think the American people are catching on to the nature of the despotic regime in Saudi Arabia. And the third point, one that Senator Lee has been talking about for a long time, is the simple constitutionality of the issue. The Constitution is very clear. It is the Congress that has war-making powers, not the President of the United States. This war is unauthorized and, in my view, unconstitutional. Senator Lee? I'm feeling the burn. (laughs) The reason that that's so funny is that Mike Lee is, you know, a Tea Party conservative. He's part of that era. He's a hardcore constitutional conservative, the way that he would describe himself. And so for him to align with Sanders, a Democratic Socialist, and Chris Murphy, who's on the left flank of the Democratic Party to run this, it's a really cross-ideological push. Right. So back in March, the senators were like, hey, we're going to push for a vote on something called the War Powers Resolution. Alex, explain what that is. Yeah, so basically it is a 1973 law that allows Congress to push back on a president who has put U.S. troops in harm's way. The actual quote is hostilities, and that's a nebulous term. But basically, the Obama administration started America's support for the Saudi war in Yemen. It's continued into the Trump administration, and neither president has gone to Congress seeking authorization for our military support. And so what these three senators have done is basically put resolution after resolution 
ahead of the Senate saying, we should have a conversation about this, that maybe as an institutional body, as a co-equal branch of government, we should push back against presidential authority here who has not come to us asking if we can put American troops inside of this brutal war. Right. So how did that vote go in March? Not well, not well is the right. answer. They yes. lost, I believe, the total was uh, 55-44 against. John McCain was out at that point. And the war in Yemen kept rolling after that defeat. Yeah, and we're still heavily involved. But something changed recently, and it wasn't about the Senate per se. It was about Saudi Arabia. Right. It wasn't even really about the war in Yemen, interestingly. It was about the terrible, horrific murder of the Saudi journalist and dissident Jamal Khashoggi. We have a previously talked about this on the podcast. We'll have that in the show notes, a link to it. Make sure you guys can go back and get a little bit more background on that. But we now know pretty definitively based on CIA, leaked CIA analysis, and just kind of everything that we all know publicly, that that order came down to kill Khashoggi from the highest levels of the Saudi government. This one particular event, for some reason, seems to have really one, you know, horrified people around the world, but also in the Senate and really galvanized people to maybe start to rethink our close relationship with Saudi Arabia and Trump's, you know, more specifically Trump's policy towards Saudi Arabia. And, you know, one of the ways to push back on that would be by pushing back on U.S. support for the role in Yemen. Yeah, it didn't help that Trump has been, as Jen mentioned, very, very clear about how firmly behind Saudi Arabia he is despite this issue. Uh, He has put out this, it's really worth reading, we have it on the site, this like seventh grade level statement full of exclamation points about just like, the world is a very dangerous place. You know, it's- That's literally the first line of the statement, by the way, that's not a paraphrase. Yeah, with an exclamation point. He basically goes like, look, Mohammed bin Salman, the de facto leader of Saudi Arabia has denied, he's denied his involvement and maybe he did it, maybe he didn't, but like at the end of the day, we need Saudi Arabia, so. Right, so the murder of Khashoggi happens, the kind of international backlash, senators, many of whom have- supported our relationship with Saudi Arabia feel betrayed, and they decide to bring this vote up again. Yes. So the vote Wednesday, and I want to be clear about this, was about continuing the discussion about ending the Yemen war. It is not a vote about ending America's involvement in the war, but still, it passed. 63-37, that is a bit of a victory. Over the next week or so, they're going to actually have the real vote. Okay, wait, 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 hold on. What, what's the deal with this real vote business? I think I asked you about this before the show, and I'm still kind of confused. No, totally fair. So, again, the vote on Wednesday was about should we, as the Senate, have a conversation about ending America's involvement in the Yemen war? That passed. So they said, yes, let's hey, now have a conversation let's about have a con- the U.S. role. Let's have a conversation. And so a vote either next week or in the coming weeks will be about exactly that. Should we authorize America's involvement in the war? So this is like the first big step to kicking off what could eventually be ending the U.S. support. Right. right? It would be a congressional re- uh, cool. an official congressional rebuke. And to be clear, previous efforts had never passed this stage. So we had never even gotten to the conversation stage. Right. That makes sense. All right. So now what? Now, it, that that next thing, the real vote, quote-unquote, seems likely to pass, right? Is that the sense, or do people not know? It's actually unclear. We've, For example, Bob Corker, who is the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, although he's on his way out in the next Congress, said, look, don't take my vote for the continuing conversation to mean that I will then vote against— The war, right. <laughs> I will get vote against America's participation in the war later. So it's possible that it goes back 
uh, that it goes contrary to what we just happened. But the fact that it was 63-37 means that a lot of votes have to basically switch. Right. And it's just remarkable. I just want to stop for a second and make it clear, like what Alex said, is that we haven't even ever been able to get it this far, right? Uh, and by we, I mean the senators who support ending the U.S. role, which I happen to agree with, hence why I'm including myself as part of that. But I mean, on Wednesday, we heard Senator Chris Murphy, who again has been one of the you know main leading voices kind of championing, let's you know have this conversation. Uh, and I don't have the exact quote, but he was basically like, I've been doing this for years. For three years, yeah. I've never seen this. I interviewed like, him in 2015. I was in his office and yeah. he was talking about how important this was. Right, and he was like floored himself that, that he got this result. Senate so it's a floored? big deal. Senate floored. Get out of here. But, <laughs> Your dad so, but what does this actually mean, right? Like, not just this vote, but the next vote. Like, if the Senate and the House were to come together and say, no, we are going to vote to end the U.S. role, like, what does that mean? Look, if both houses of Congress end up passing War Powers Resolution, it'll be very difficult for the president to wriggle out of it, which will mean— U.S. participation in the war in Yemen will come to an end, right? They will not authorize it. And if it's not authorized, then we can't help the Saudis. We can't give them intelligence support. We can't be selling them weapons to continue this conflict. It will be a significant rebuke. Maybe according to one respected Saudi analyst, Bruce Riddell Brookings, it would be the most serious rebuke the United States has ever delivered to Saudi Arabia in terms of the relationship between the two countries. And it would tangibly affect their ability on the margins, but still to wage this devastating campaign. But I think there's even like a bigger potential knock-on effects. And that's, you know, there have been movements not just in the U.S., but in other countries. So we're not the only Western country supporting the Saudis in this war. Uh, The U.K., uh, France, Germany— And there have been people in those countries calling on their leaders to also end support for the same reasons you've heard in the United States, and they haven't had the political will to do so or have chosen not to. This could be, you know, if the U.S., this kind of big, you know, world leader, finally takes this step, it could provide, I think, the political cover for politicians in the U.K. and France and elsewhere to say, okay, cool, well, the U.S. is doing it, then we can do it too. So this could actually potentially end a lot of the support for the Saudi war, which is a win by all counts for me. What's so interesting about this is it wasn't anything about the war itself that started this, right? It was a separate incident of Saudi overreach. It was the murder of a journalist in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, which really has nothing to do directly with the war in Yemen. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's It is certainly striking. I also do want to lay a bit of the blame at Trump's feet directly, not only just for the support of the war, but how he mishandled this whole situation, right, by firmly backing Saudi Arabia while showing almost no real desire to punish it for the Khashoggi murder. And on top of that, this I promise you this mattered, that the White House stopped CIA Director Gina Haspel from briefing senators ahead of the vote, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis briefed them. But they specifically called for Gina Haspel to come, the reason being that the CIA is the one that did the analysis of who was behind Khashoggi's murder. Right. So senators were like, all right, I want to hear what the CIA has to say. Yeah, and the White House, probably because they know what the intelligence said, was like, we don't want her to talk. And so senators, including staunch Trump allies like Lindsey Graham, were like, I'm pissed off. And I think part of this vote was in an effort to basically tell Trump to knock it off. Yeah, I I, I just want to say, I find it fascinating, too. And this is something I still can't really— I don't think I really have a definitive answer to why the Khashoggi murder, of all things, was like the breaking point for these senators. Because to me, like, the U.S.-Saudi relationship has been around for decades. And if 
9-11 didn't break the U.S., you know, close U.S.-Saudi relationship, if video and, and reports of bombings of school buses full of children in Yemen, if pictures of starving children in Yemen, that didn't seem to affect senators, right? But it's the murder of this one individual journalist, which, though heinous, it was a horrific murder, but it's still one person, right? And I just find that fascinating. And, and I just want to point to what I think is maybe one reason. Our colleague at Vox, Brian Resnick, uh, is one of our science reporters, and he's done a lot of really interesting work on psychic numbing, is what they call it, which is basically that we don't emotionally respond as well to generalizations of mass killings, right? We can't really visualize that. We are better and tend to be more responsive if it's like one single individual that we can really identify with. It's, it's the that, apocryphal Stalin quote, right? right? Like one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. Exactly. And so, I, I, you know, part Sad of me thinks— true. That, <laughs> right. But part of me thinks that that might have something to do with it. Again, I don't know. I also think that there's a bigger strategic intellectual position here. First of all, I don't think it's the case that the war didn't move senators. 44 senators voted against it right. in March. And so yes. Murphy has been fighting this you know, fight for a while. Yeah, there, there totally was right. a background sure. here. It just wasn't the majority of senators. Right, there had right. to be something that changed people, some people who were on the fence, right? right? And the reason that Khashoggi, I think, was so important. First of all, he was an American resident, so it felt like a kind of international crime against a defenseless person the U.S. had to tie to. Whose kids so, are American. Right. And and second, it illustrates the nature of the current Saudi leadership, specifically right. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Right. This is a guy who has been adventurous and dangerous in terms of his foreign policy throughout the Middle East. Saudi Arabia, the basis of the U.S.-Saudi relationship, was that Saudi would help the U.S. keep the Middle East stable. He has been aggressively anti-Iranian and in many ways destabilizing the Middle East through these aggressive foreign policy moves like the war in Yemen, like murdering a journalist because you think he's a threat, like cracking down on dissidents in a way that you hadn't seen from previous Saudi like leaders. Like launching a massive diplomatic and economic blockade of Qatar. Right. Like these are all really, really aggressive moves. And finally, Americans are paying attention to what this guy is like, and American leadership is paying attention to what their ally is doing under its new government. And I think that's part of what galvanized Yeah, I think the, the brazenness of, of just, like, not giving a shit and just straight up, like, having a guy murdered, butchered, really, in this consulate abroad without really giving a shit. Like, I can just do this and no one's going to punish me. I think that just cocky, brazen attitude is definitely part of it. I think you're right. All of what you said is right. One side point that I don't want to get lost is that Congress historically has not rebuked the president on issues of war, just period. And one of the biggest issues in American foreign policy has been the centralization of, of war-making powers within the White House. Right. So for Congress to do this, it's small, but kudos to them for actually taking back some of their constitutional authority. Now we're going to take a brief break. When we come back, we're going to discuss the ongoing Brexit chaos engulfing the UK. Think of all the things that you work hard to provide for your family, your home, a college education, your entire lifestyle. How do you make sure all of those things are still possible, even if something unexpectedly happens to you? Life insurance used to be a pain. You had to deal with an agent who would come across like a used car salesman, schedule a blood test at a doctor's office, or you have her paperwork filled with fine print and legalese. But now with Ethos, the application only takes 10 minutes online. That's online. There's honest upfront pricing, no doctor's appointment for policies under $1 million. Yeah, no doctor's appointment for policies under $1 million. Wow. 
Get your free quote and submit your complete application in just 10 minutes now at worldly.getethos.com. One more time, that's worldly.getethos.com. Is it possible for one of the most brazen political bribery scandals in American history to play out before the country while no one's paying attention? Bagman, a new Rachel Maddow podcast from MSNBC, goes back 45 years to dig into a story that got overshadowed in its day. It has intrigue, corruption, envelopes of cash delivered to the White House. It's a story that's not well known, but it probably should be, especially today. Bagman, an original podcast from MSNBC's Rachel Maddow. Listen for free wherever you get your podcasts or learn more at msnbc.com slash bagman. On a more personal note, I will say our producer, Bird Pinkerton, has listened to Bagman and loves it, thinks it's great. And Bird has impeccable taste, so you should check it out. And welcome back. <laughs> Hello and welcome back. My name is Zachary Beecham IV, and I'm here to talk to you about Brexit, the UK's fabulous decision to quit the horrible European continent and uh, go on hey, imperial way. Oh, pip, pip. Oh. <laughs> Two weeks ago, the government of the UK reached an agreement with the European Union on the terms of Brexit, Britain's departure from the EU. It doesn't solve all the big issues. It punts a lot of things down the line to future negotiations. But basically, the UK is going to, for the time being, stay in line and adhere to a lot of EU regulations surrounding things like trade. Uh, and it's doing that while also sacrificing representation in the EU parliament. So this doesn't seem like exactly what the pro-Brexit people wanted. <laughs> right. So it's kind of like the worst of both worlds. They have to adhere to all the rules, or most at least, the rules of the EU without actually having a vote on what those rules are. So the people who supported Brexit are really pissed off. But the people who don't support Brexit are also really pissed off. So, like, everybody hates this deal. That sounds bad? It well, seems not great. But there's, like, a reason they had to do this, right? And it's that if they just quit all the EU rules and regulations really fast, the UK economy would completely tank, right? It just would not function very well. Right. And so they needed to get the EU to agree to let them stay in certain of the uh, common market rules that allow for free trade between them. Right. But here's the thing that I think, you know, talking about the economic issue, just this week, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, which is basically like the Secretary of the Treasury uh, with fancy British words. I love that phrase. Uh, it's much fancier. Came out and and is, you know, in advance of this big government analysis that they did that is like a 15-year projection of what Brexit will mean for the UK economy. And he came out and said, under any Brexit scenario, like this deal or literally any other deal possible, if we Brexit, no matter what, it is going to harm, meaning shrink, the UK economy. Wah, wah. And this is, there's this great supercut of British Prime Minister Theresa May and her own chancellor kind of speaking about this issue that went kind of viral. The analysis does not show that we will be poorer than the status quo today. Uh, the analysis shows clearly that remaining in the European Union uh, would be a better outcome for the economy. You're just fatally undercutting your boss's point that she said two jeers on the floor of parliament. Right. To be fair, he was originally against Brexit. Like, he was a Remainer, but he is in her government, right? It's, and, it's also worth noting, too, that that supercut was put together by an opposition party. Uh, right. So to be fair. This is, this is the, 
line that they're pushing against Brexit, right? And this is a devastating rebuke to the campaign for leaving, uh, which sold itself as being good for the British economy, that they'd save money to spend on themselves. This report comes out right as Theresa May is trying to sell this plan, like this deal, this Brexit deal. And then this report comes out that basically says, yeah, look, no matter what, this is going to hurt. Now, in some ways it does help because it's either this deal or no deal. It's the worst game of deal or no deal ever. Right. Uh, not going into the numbers, all you need to know is if there is a deal of some sort between the UK and the EU, the economy contracts significantly, but not as much, like way, I mean, it's way worse, <laughs> right. way, way worse if there is a no deal Brexit, which is effectively, as, as Zach alluded to, like a complete severance of UK and, e, and EU law. Which is complete omnishambles, yeah, right? Yeah, which complete is chaos. also a great word. Yes. Uh, which, by the way, pointing out that like the hardcore Brexiteers, like they want that complete break and they promised so many great things, right? A better economy, return of sovereignty. But at the end of the day, as we're seeing, it was like selling a beautiful garden of unicorns and puppies and like everything's going to be fantastic. Right. Right? Like it, it turned, it's a, it's literally a mythical fairyland right. is what they sold. And I just, absolutely right. I just want to stop for a second and point out the fundamental fact that British voters essentially voted to voluntarily shrink their own economy. Now, they were sold a bill of goods, right? Those who voted to leave the EU were influenced by a very savvy campaign by the people pushing that policy and were promised, you know, oh, actually, it will grow the economy and it'll be good for us. But there, even at the time, were plenty of people who were saying, no, 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 this is really going to hurt the and UK no, economy. And, and, and they did it, and I've done a lot of reporting on this, and they did it primarily in order to keep immigrants out, right? This right. was this this was a movement to hurt, like, you're cutting off your nose to spite, to spite your, your face, face. Right. and your face, your face here is the UK economy, but the underlying reason and rationale for it fundamentally is nationalism and xenophobia. As part of the EU, like, the UK has to accept movement, free movement of people, which includes, like, migrants who have come into other EU countries who have then are able to move into the UK. And so part of the big, you know, leave argument was like, look, if we leave the EU, we don't have to be part of that anymore. We can control our borders again, and we don't have to take in all these immigrants. Not really realizing that <laughs> immigrants tend to help your economy and that being part of the EU also offered a lot of other economic benefits. And we're still not really sure where this deal and the final status of Brexit is going to land on the immigration issue. So essentially that thing they didn't even get, but what they're definitely getting is a shrinking of the UK economy. Which I guess is not so surprising then that a bunch of people, and there is a bit of a movement to have a second referendum on Brexit, right? right? Let's vote again. I think it was 52-48 the last time. So very close. Yeah, it was close. It was very close. Something along those lines. And so it's possible that this could be overturned. Anyway. Well, we don't know. And there's a pivotal vote on December 11th that will determine the future of this. That's the vote in Parliament on Prime Minister Theresa May's plan. And if the vote passes, the plan's approved and Brexit goes in the way that she wants it to. But if it doesn't, based on opposition of the Remainers Alex was just talking about and the conservatives that Jen has been talking about who want a hardcore Brexit— well, then there's two options. Second referendum and staying in the European Union, probably. Which a lot of people say is actually, you know... The best possible outcome. and uh, Or a no-deal Brexit and... Omnishambles. Yes. So the UK is in a period of massive uncertainty, and I do not doubt that we'll be revisiting the result of that vote at one point in the future. Dalio! 
I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton. I want to thank all of you, our loyal listeners, and to remind you to rate, subscribe, review Worldly uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever it is, we're there. And now uh, we'll say goodbye for the week. Bye. Bye.